Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is guitarist and live from Daryl's house musical director Shane Terrio. First of all, there's a new development that's coming out of clubs in Japan and the UK that may help clubs actually stay open. As you know, nightclubs and venues everywhere are having trouble, and so many of them are closing, which is causing a crisis for working musicians. But Japan and the United Kingdom think that they have a strategy that might turn that around. Believe it or not, it's so simple that you think, why hasn't anybody thought of this before? And that's starting all of the gigs earlier. Yeah, the whole idea is start gigs early in the evening and get everybody home early, and that way you won't have a problem with people attending. I think all of us in the business have gone through this where a friend of ours is going to be playing at a club, and you say, well, what time are you going on? They say, 11.30. 11.30, wow. I don't know if I want to stay up that late. Not only that, club time probably means a lot later than that, probably 12.30. By that time, I don't know if my ears are ready for anything. And really, what we want to do is we want to do this a lot earlier in the night. Both Japan and the United Kingdom are actually trying to end all of their gigs by 11 o'clock. And in Canada, they're trying to do it by 10 o'clock. So in other words, they're starting really early, 6.30, 7 o'clock, getting all of the bands, all the musicians and all the customers in and out as soon as they can. Now, you might think this only applies to baby boomers, but in fact, the problem actually exists for younger people as well. And we see millennials and Gen X and Gen Y just don't stay out as late as they used to. Why? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're working. (laughs) And it requires that they get into work earlier, or at least they get in and not feel like they're thrashed. So what we're seeing again is this trend for earlier gigs. I think it's a whole lot better. As a matter of fact, what's happening out in California, Lenny Goldsmith, who used to be the singer for Tower of Power, among other bands like that, has a group called The New Old And they make sure that they finish all their gigs by 9 p.m. And they broadcast it to all of their fans, basically saying, look, we're going to get you home really early. And it really helps their crowd because, let's face it, we all want to get on with it. We all want to hear things sooner rather than later. And we all have things to do. And most of those things are at home these days. So look for this new trend. It should be helping the music business in general. And hopefully it will keep clubs alive and keep that part of the business healthy. If you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. If you want to learn more about the basics of mixing, sign up for my four-week music mixing primer webinar course. Go to mixingprimer.com to learn more. Also, check out my new Hitmakers Club for access to a powerful online group, all of my courses, monthly workshops and Q&A webinars, core basic training, and much, much more. Go to hitmakersclub.com to find out all about it. Now, I think we all know that the older we get, the worse our hearing gets. And this is scary for everyone that works in the studio, where you think that, wow, the harder it's going to be for me to hear, which means it's going to be more difficult to make a living. It turns out that for the most part with engineers, their ears adapt, and even though they lose top end, they learn to adapt, and it's not much of a problem as you would think. And for musicians in general, even though they may be losing their hearing, 
they're still able to hear things that it turns out the rest of the general population cannot. Yes, there's a study that found out that most people, as they get older, can hear okay on a one-in-one conversation, but the real problem is separating speech from noise, which is much more difficult. Older musicians don't have this problem, though. They have the same amount of hearing loss, but they're much able to pick out speech from a crowd or speech from noise. So Ryerson University is running a study, and they're attempting to teach music to people that are losing their hearing in order to help them differentiate between speech and background noise. They're using a program called Theta Music Trainer, and what this does is it just asks people to vocally match a tone that the computer plays for it. So this is all vocal. It has nothing to do with actually playing. It's just vocal. Match the tone that the computer is playing. And it turns out that this actually helps people later on when it comes to discerning speech or discerning whatever they want from within a crowd or within noise. Now, if you've done any study on this, you know this is known as the cocktail effect. The cocktail effect allows you to zero in on a certain conversation when you're at a cocktail party. And we get worse and worse at this as we get older. But it turns out musical training actually might turn this around, which is good news for anybody losing their hearing. My guest today is guitar player Shane Terrio, who's now the musical director for Daryl Hall's Live at Daryl's Place, as well as a guitarist for Hall & Oates. Along the way, Shane has played with a variety of musical celebs that include the Neville Brothers, Willie Nelson, Dr. John, Beyonce, Little Feet, and Sammy Hagar, among many, many others. Shane is also an acclaimed solo artist, and his latest album is called Still Motion, which is now available. I spoke with Shane via Skype from Pittsburgh before a Hall & Notes concert. I actually want to start with something that is kind of interesting to me. What was your childhood like? Was it very musical in terms of your family? Does does your family play? Did you play all the time in front of people when you were a kid? Yeah, actually I did. Uh, my my mom's family were, were the more musically inclined side of the family. Um, my mom and two of her sisters all played piano. Actually, one of them played with the New Orleans Symphony for a bit. Um, uh my uncles all played guitar and that was my initial attraction to it my father um he loved music he was not um he he tried to play accordion cajun fiddle and he just never but he loved it he would take me to cajun music festivals when i was a kid and we were around music you know so uh i played my first gig I think I was 11 years old and it was at, uh, you know, a, a festival. So I was around music. I, I was an actual, quote, gigging musician by the time I was in my early teens. You know, yeah. I was yeah. playing Mardi Gras parades, um, all kinds of things. Yeah. The reason why I ask is it seems like musicians from Louisiana in general just have this vibe about them. And from what I can tell, it comes from the fact that everybody's learning early and they want, they, they grow up learning to play in front of people and it starts with family and then it just goes to wherever, but it's a different vibe than anywhere else that I've seen. And just in terms of the background and where you're coming from, and it really affects the music from what I can tell. I'd say that that's, that's true. And that, that was, that was the case. Certainly when I was younger, um, 
I'm not sure if that's the case anymore. I don't really know. But I know like in towns like Lafayette, Louisiana, a lot of those guys that are like, great musicians, accordion players or fiddle players, they grew up definitely being around the older generations. And then for whatever reason, it's not in the DNA to want to go on the road or be a professional or leave town. They, you know, they end up becoming like they build like kitchen cabinets or become electricians or whatever, very working class, but they play on the weekends. You know, and they're like great players. So there's that, definitely that culture exists. I remember distinctly being with my dad um, at a at a gig somewhere. There was a band, a local band that played of all these kind of weekend warrior guitar, you know, uh, weekend warrior players that played all this classic top 40, you know, type of music in Louisiana called Swamp Pop in Southern Louisiana. And I remember hearing my dad talking to one of the guys in the band because he had gotten laid off from work. And he was like, I'm just going to do this because I can make more money doing this if I stay. And I, I remember it hit me like lightning. I thought, wow, you can actually do this for a living. And it just went kind of across the grain of what, you know, just the, the, the way I, I had seen people grow up in the working class environment and things like that. You know? So it wasn't until later I thought, you can actually do it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You went to, to GIT early then, like right out of high school? I did. I, I uh, uh, My family moved to, uh, we left the New Orleans area when I was, uh, let's see, I think I was about 16, almost 17. It was kind of a weird move. Um, I moved in the middle of my junior year of high school, and uh, we moved to South Carolina, which actually proved to be a good move because the school was really good, and I ended up playing in a jazz band in the school and I ended up playing in the college jazz band um, because it, you, you know I could read and everything and I was a decent player so they, they needed a guy so I was doing all that stuff I was teaching I was but I had a scholarship to this college and everything but I just knew nah I'm not staying here it, as soon as I have the money I'm out so yeah I went to GIT when I was uh, I, I think I was oh, I forget I was either 18 or just turned 19. I mean, as soon as I left, I, I like saved some money for like another eight months or nine months and I left and I went to California. Yeah. Good move, huh? And uh, it was awesome. I really, I always loved California. I always wanted to go back. It, I just was so green. I didn't have any money and it was, just, you know, I was so young in retrospect, but um, so I've always had an affinity with Southern California yeah but it was a great move because i was around um people that people meaning players that uh you know the problem with some of the the college uh environment i was exposed to was that you had professors who had never really been in the real world gigging i mean just the one i was at. i know there are other amazing teachers and things but i wanted to be guys that i wanted to be with the guys that were in the trenches working that were really and, and at that time, MI, well, it was GIT at that time, that was the school. You know, I mean, it was a, just a pretty magical time to go there. And um, I, I met one of my heroes, Scott Henderson, who was playing with uh, Chick Corea and Joe Zawano at the time and Tribal Tech. And Scott kind of helped me out to get a teaching gig when I graduated. He had set up a gig for me already teaching. So that's how that whole thing happened. Um, but yeah, it was a great experience. Back then. What was like your first break then? Well, 
I had like a lot of small breaks. I, I guess my first big break, like being on a, I, you know, I went to Europe. I toured, done some things. I was starting to do things. I think my first break would be uh, playing, getting the Neville Brothers gig, uh, which ironically meant going back home to Louisiana. But I was, I was living in Nashville when I got that gig. And um, that was the first, you know, real tour buses, you know, real tours playing. That was my first experience at that. I had played with other people before, done done things, but definitely I would say that's the one that started. I started making more connections, and it opened up a lot of doors, tons of doors. Well, that gave. I did want to talk to you about that because it must have felt really good because growing up in New Orleans and the iconic Neville Brothers, who you know they ruled down there, and then finally to be in a band with them, it must have been pretty cool. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, it was a, a pretty special day. I remember um, going down there to audition, and I was in a cab, and I called one of my best friends that, that I grew up with. I said, I'm coming down here to audition for Neville Brothers. And I said, what are you doing tonight? He said, let's go out, hang out, and have some drinks. I said, great. If I get the gig, we're going out. Drinks are on me. If I don't get the gig, drinks are on you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it happened and the guy that actually hooked me up that I have to thank is still a dear friend of mine. His name's Eric Struthers. He, Eric uh, was doing some producing in Nashville. He was a great guitar player, and he took a shot on something going on. He was playing with the Neville Brothers, and he actually, uh, for personal reasons, he had to leave, and he he pushed me to, you know, Neville's. They had other people they were interested in, but... Um, I went down there and played, and, and I already had I had like two set lists of material, and I shedded everything. I knew all that stuff. I'd learned, I'd listened to a lot of it growing up, but I really did my homework on Aaron Neville's, you know, his ballads. It's like having four gigs because every each one of the brothers had their own repertoire and the way they like to hear things. So um, I, I basically, I just went down there and was really well prepared. And um, they had a couple of guys like literally in the room waiting to audition after me and I remember the drummer going up to Aaron is like man I like this cat and Aaron just said yeah we got our guy and <laughs> he sent the other guys home I felt really bad um, but I remember staying at Charlie Neville's house after that audition and Charlie is like watching the History Channel and eating his Popeye's red beans and rice and I said so do I have the gig like he goes yeah 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 you have the gig there's a schedule in the in the office. So I went to the office and I'm looking, I'm going, hmm, today is uh, Wednesday. Next Wednesday, will it's David Letterman's show and then this show. And then, the, you know, it was all these TV things at the time, you know, they had just done this record. So it was a really exciting, it was a nice break. You know, it was a, a real tour and we were on tour with, uh, that first one was B.B. King and then we were on tour with Little Feet and we, I mean, tons of people would come to those gigs and yeah. sit in and is open up a lot of doors and then it was a great time when you look back on it was there something in particular that you learned from them oh lots of things um playing with attitude committing to a part not playing too much um i think it generally helped me become i mean obviously like if you get technical guitar thing yeah it, it really my, my rhythm guitar playing improved exponentially over that time and it actually created, helped me come up with this style that I think I may have a little bit of a style now that was definitely shaped through working with those guys. Um, just a lot of things about how to get out of your head, and not just be thinking as a guitarist, but thinking about 
you know, a band, um, less is more. I mean, just if you would have worked with any one of those guys, you would have learned that. But I had the opportunity to work with all four in, in different capacities at the same time or on their records. I mean, Art Neville was the founder of the Meters, and he had his own philosophy on things, you know. And uh, one of his lessons was always the things that make, you know, stuff that's funky. The reason it's funky is, is the spaces in between the notes, you know. Yeah. It, it creates little tension is what makes it funky he always had this analogy where he would he'd say, it's like a washing machine it's like it goes back and he would do the washing machine thing and that was that's the way he explained funk you know yeah but uh yeah it was definitely school you know with those guys for sure were you a funky player before that did you consider yourself a funk player i think i was a good player i don't know if i was a really i think maybe i was a little more of a cerebrally funky player meaning like Sometimes funk guys pick up a guitar and they, they try to be funky and it's too much. It's too it's way too much. You have to think in, in two bar phrases. You know you have to figure that you're trying to grab a listener. Like if you listen to Bootsy Collins or it's a, it's all about almost it's just simplicity and feel mixed together. Yeah. Which I probably had too much of certain things, so I needed to distill it. So yeah, I could play funky. I could cut the gig, but definitely. It got funkier for sure after okay. after being around and hearing and being immersed and stuff you know yeah. I, mean, I grew up listening to you know i grew up i was like in, uh, listening to rock and jazz and stuff when i was a kid so i would hear mardi gras mambo and pocky way i knew all that stuff i'd hear it on the school when i was a kid but i never my mom she gave me called glass for you the media like a and I remember listening to that when I was a kid. That is just something about that. What is it? I know it's a figure. It's that car that meters thing. It always stuck in my head, you know. Yeah. Let's move on here. I don't want to keep you too long because I know you're you're busy and I appreciate the time. Sure, yeah. I know you and a lot of other people know you from Live at Daryl's house. You're the musical director for that, which I have so many questions, and I don't want to bore you with them, and I want to get to other things, but the biggest thing is, what's the rehearsal time like, or is there any rehearsal for the band before you, you do a show? No, there's no rehearsal. There's, uh, I mean, the only rehearsal we have is uh, I get together with Daryl the day before the shoot, just he and I at his house or studio, and we go over the material briefly. We'll work on like vocal lines or things he might want to harmonize. We'll make sure to pick what, what he's going to play as far as keyboards or guitar or certain sounds. And that is that process is maybe two hours, two and a half hours, that's very minimal. And then the day of the shoot, we get there in the morning, meaning the band, not Daryl. And I'll, you know, we'll goof off for a while and then we'll run. We'll try to run through each song. And I'll just sort of like sing or somebody will sing the part just so we can get through the arrangement. And sometimes we don't even make it through every tune. And then Daryl shows up, he'll check his mic, and that's it. There's no rehearsals. I, I write charts. Uh, not everybody in the band uses the charts. Sometimes they do, but um, that's about the only prep there is. And, and we shoot the – when you see the camera roll on the show, when you see the artist pull up in the, in the car – 
and the camera's in their face. That's that's it. I mean, we don't, there's nothing edited. And we generally run the song once or twice. Generally what you see on a, on a, a final episode is probably a second take, maybe. Sometimes first take. Very rarely three takes. I would like to do three takes, but Daryl won't let me. You know, <laughs> he wants to keep it really raw. He just likes it. He, he doesn't care if there's if it's not perfect. He just wants feel. It trumps to him. It trumps everything else. So you know, that's how that's done. It's very on the fly. I, um, and the guitar player and me, you know, some of these solos I caught. You're not going to get a second chance. No, you're not going to get 15 camera guy, guys in a crew to redo a whole take with with you know the OJs or something, so you can get another shot at a guitar solo. It's not going to happen. So you have to nail everything as best you can. Okay, so I can understand that with the music, but vocals are a lot harder. How do you pull that off? Jeez, vocals are great. Well, vocals, well, luckily everybody in the band, like some of those guys were actually lead singers in other bands, like uh, Porter, the percussionist, was a lead singer in Atlantic Star. You know, certain guys, and those guys are great singers. Everybody can sing, and we can work out blocks fairly quickly. Uh, meaning vocal blocks, you know, background vocal things. So um, we'll kind of work on things like that. Yeah, that's it's tricky. Wow. But um, after you do it a lot, and we, we've all worked with a lot of different artists, it, it goes pretty quickly. and We can figure out what best works for certain things. How is it different from doing Live at Daryl's House from being on the road with Hall & Oates? Because it's basically the same band except oh. for, for John, right? That's right. Yeah, being on the road is much easier. I mean, like, it's like night and day easier. You know? Yeah. The, the, the TV show is very stressful um, because it's weeks of prep for me. And and, uh, and when we shoot it, it's a pretty hectic day. I mean, being on the road is like with these guys, it's uh, we never do two shows in a row. It's just kind of relaxed, you know, pretty easy. Where are you at now? We're in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Ah, okay. Yeah, and then we play tomorrow, and then we go to we go to New York. So I'll be in New York for. I, mean, I have a place in New York too, so I'll be there. It's kind of like my second home, so I'll be there for a week. Looking forward to that. Do you live in Nashville or do you live in New Orleans again? I live in New Orleans and New York City. Ah, okay. Let's talk about your new album, uh, Still Motion. How do you have the time to do your solo record, considering you're so busy with all this other stuff? Well. Not having time is one of the greatest excuses ever, I think. I think that you can find the time if you really want to. Uh, and that's what I did. I just sort of made up my mind I would finish it. I had a few tracks that I had cut um, a couple of years ago in L.A. with Jim Keltner, who I've worked with from time to time, and uh, he had worked on one of my previous solo records. And I was just sitting on these magic grooves with him, and I thought, okay, i got to finish this stuff. And then I've always had it in my head to, tried to do a trio record with a lot of space and i just um i mean to answer your question i just did it just scheduled it and did it i mean i, I was living in new york up in westchester and my neighbor up there was john schofield a jazz guitar player who's a, you know one of my heroes we would hang out a lot at this diner every couple of weeks and it's kind of depressing because i would still be trying to finish you know, half my record, he would already be like two records done, you know, and he told me, he's like, don't obsess over every little thing. Just at some point you have to walk away, you know? Yeah. You know? So I just, I just did it, just finished it. And uh, Okay. So you had three different rhythm sections on this. Was that by design or was it just because of the way that 
it felt the the way everything fell with time. So you had a block of time. Well, so you picked up this rhythm, rhythm section. Is that the way that worked, or was it just pre? Not really. No. The uh, this. Let's see. Maybe four or five tracks on the record were done in New Orleans with two people that I I handpicked. I mean, it's Johnny Vodakovich and James Singleton, which is like one of the quintessential rhythm sections in New Orleans. Um, um, they play with everybody together. James Booker and Professor Longhair and Astral Project and. I've worked with those guys on a lot of projects. Very, very musical players. Before I got the gig with, uh, before I had moved to New York to start working on Daryl's show, I was rehearsing with this trio a lot. So they already were sort of familiar with my material. So I just booked a session and we cut four or five tunes at one day. The stuff in LA, like I, I was saying, I already had that. So I just finished that. And then there's a drummer named Kirk Covington, who's a... He was in this band called Tribal Tech, and he played with Joe Zown. He's a great drummer. And he was really pushing me to finish, and we had done some playing together. And I had a day, a couple days off in Austin while I was out with John and Daryl, and Kirk really helped me. And He said, I'm going to find a studio, and we're going to finish your record. So I went in and cut two more tracks with him. And um, that's how it all got finished. You've produced other artists and you have a Grammy, as a matter of fact, as a producer. What's it like producing other people versus producing yourself? I think it's much, much easier producing other people <laughs> because uh, when you, you know, there's no, there's no filter when you do your own thing. There's all the self-doubt and the self, uh, you know, the deprecation and all the, all the little, the little critic, it turns into a giant critic when I'm by myself with no with no nobody there to turn things on and off or make any sort of objective decisions. Whereas if you're in the studio with another artist and that artist trusts you, which they should if they if you're quote producing them, um, it's easier to make calls. You know, it's always it's like like the saying, you know, it's always easier to give it but anybody can give advice. You know, it's the same thing with producing. It's easier to see what other people need. For me it is anyway. Do you have a particular approach to producing? And, and the reason why I say that is, I hear you coming from two different places. The one place is very loose and in the moment as you're working with Daryl, for instance, and, and the Nevilles, and then also being pretty critical about what you're doing and trying to get it perfect. So that must be hard to uh, find a balance between them. Yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. I, I think... Um because I had worked as a, a studio guitar player a lot, and I have a lot of experience in the studio, I'm, I can make calls pretty quickly, and I, I can sort of make decisions that way where I don't obsess over things with other other people. And, and uh, I think part of the thing with producing is uh, picking the right material and just having some sort of strategy. You know, you don't want to go in cold. Um, with with the, Joel, the record I won the Grammy for last year was a... Um, record uh, by this artist named Joel Sonia and Joel is a he's a great Cajun artist and um, he's one of the last he's he's one of the last generations that grew up only his his native language is Cajun French I mean he writes and wrote this beautiful it was a brand new repertoire of Cajun music my, my dad was a huge fan of his he had been nominated already a few times and you know Bob Dylan's a big fan of his and Little Feet, and he's he's been in the movie like Mask. He's in the movie. He's he's a notable guy already, but he never 
his records could never, I just knew I could shape it. I remember having a conversation with him and if you just trust me, I will capture this. And we did, you know, and uh, it won the Grammy. It was a lot of work, but it was just having the right repertoire, getting the right musicians in and the sound. You know, we recorded it at a beautiful studio in Maurice, Louisiana called Dockside. It was just a beautiful old wood everywhere and got the, the old sound, recorded the accordion well. And so I'm really proud of that record. When you say old sound, do you mean as in vintage or are you talking about the purity of it? Yeah, well, well meaning um, the way the old guys used to do it. Uh, they would they would put up these these beautiful old ribbon mics at the time they weren't old and that's how they would record the the we ran his accordion through uh, an Ampeg bass amp flip top old flip top tube amp which already was funky and sounded great and gritty mic that up and then I had a couple of nice ribbon mics uh, for options around his accordion so I could pick up the uh, his little bit of the finger noise and the breath coming out of the you know the bow and stuff and and that's that is i think his prior record he had ran direct you know into some signal processor it's like no 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 yeah yeah so uh that really helped with the vibe of the whole sound you know i think some producers like uh t-bone burnett is probably the most notable one or daniel lenoir those guys are especially daniel lenoir those guys are masters at capturing a vibe i mean if you could Put it in three words, producing, capture a vibe, you know, and that's what I, I try to do. You know, I, I study those guys for sure. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, actually. Never thought of it that way, but you're right. Okay, let's talk about some of the other things you do. I didn't know this, but you have a podcast yourself, the Riff Raff Podcast. How did that come about? Well, I, I've I had this idea for a few years. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to be around all these legendary guys, especially in New Orleans, and just be a fly on the wall for a lot of this stuff. And some of the stories I've heard, pretty amazing. Some of the conversations I had, I, I was like, wow, I can't believe I just had this conversation. You know, just crazy stuff that I wanted to document. And, um, you know, like I said in my little description of the podcast, some people like to take photographs. And this for me is sort of an audio, an audio picture or something, you know. I, uh, I sit with musicians or, um, yeah, so far it's been all musicians, but not necessarily guitar players. And we just chat and I, I sort of ask them things that I always wanted to know, you know, and um, they trust me because I've had some sort of working relationship with them. I don't, I don't do things with people I don't know, at least not yet. So it provides a little more of an intimate thing and they're very comfortable. And, and it's fun. I've gotten a lot of uh, response like a totally different audience than people that might hear my music or other things I do guitar wise. They just love it. feels like they're in a room with, with you and whoever, you know? So, um, it's really fun. I'm actually, it gives me something to do in downtime and I'm uh, actually working on one tonight to finish up. Yeah, you're right. It does feel like you're in a room with somebody. It does have that. You are their vibe. I listened to the one uh, with Will Lee, which always admired his playing and his singing as well. So it was a lot yeah. of fun to uh, to actually hear that. So it was very cool, definitely. You uh, also do video lessons and, and books as well. I, and we're actually on the same publisher, on Alfred. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. the one that's on Alfred, I did that a long time ago. I mean, I'm surprised it's still around, but I get response from it. Um, that, that one is called New Orleans Funk Guitar Styles. And I don't really teach. I, I don't teach lessons, but I, um, I've done a, a couple lesson three video series for this company called True Fire. It's a really great, great company. And um, yeah, that's, a, you know, another outlet things to do and people like it, get to share a little knowledge. And You only have the one book out or do you have more? I have, well, I have, let's see, there's a book I wrote when I was teaching at, at a GIT called The Next Step, which is on my website. That That is a really old book, but people, it's more of a con conceptual type book with some examples. That one's not like officially, quote, published, but it's up, it's up there in a PDF format. It used to be like a school curriculum. And the one uh, on Alfred is New Orleans Funk Guitar. Yeah. So that's one, one book with a, a real publisher. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been asked to do more. Um, but, you know, I really want to, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I mean, there's so many guitar books on scales and modes and blah, blah, blah. It's like, you know, I don't really want to do that again. It's probably guys that have the aptitude or the, the teaching skills that would be, uh, I wouldn't be able to probably do a, as good a job. So I, I'm just not interested in that. It's got to be a subject where I think I have something maybe to offer, you know? Yeah, you're right. There has to be a new approach. <laughs> it's really hard to find the approaches. I'm with you, brother. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. have uh, 23 books that I've written. Wow. And uh, a lot of them are in second, third, fourth edition. So I've gone through the process almost 50 times. I get the same thing. It's like, well, why don't you write another book? You know, very much like when you were talking about doing your podcast and talking to people about things you always want to know about. That's why I write books. There are subjects or there are things I always want to know about. So I, I write them to learn myself and I'm lucky because, you know, I, I know a lot of people that are a lot smarter than I am. So I learn a lot in the process and the interviews I'll always put in the book as well. Yeah. So you have like uh, their business music business books and things like that i do have some my biggest seller is the sellers are the mixing engineers handbook the recording engineers handbook uh there's music 4.0 there there's a, a bunch of them it it goes between recording yeah. and music business for the most part oh yeah very useful very useful skills to have for sure last question shane what is the best piece of business advice that you've received along the way by somebody or maybe something that you learned? Well, you know, it's, <laughs> I don't know if there's one single piece of advice there. There are things that come up in my mind that are, I think are both valid and very useful nuggets of advice. But they often contradict themselves. I remember a guy in Nashville who was a, a big session player told me once, don't get pigeonholed. Um, and that's stuck in my mind. And then at the same time, I remember hearing diversify. <laughs> so, I mean, I think they're both valid. It, it, I, I would say first, it depends on what you want to do. But I would say given the, this day and age, um, it doesn't hurt to diversify and be a little bit of uh, not, you don't want to spread yourself too thin, but you want to have a little bit of engineering chops, maybe on Pro Tools. You don't have to be able to mix a record, but you want to be able to maybe do an overdub or, uh, you know, something like that, do some simple edits. Um, 
some arranging skills are helpful. I use them all the time, you know, maybe Sibelius or something like that, being able to knock out charts. Uh, that's what I mean by diversify, you know, take some vocal lessons, be able to sing some background vocals, maybe a little bit of keyboard chops, things like that. They, they're not going to hurt, you know? Yeah. Um, on the flip side pertaining to, uh, don't get pigeonholed. I don't know if you want to be a solo artist, I would say stick to that. The thing I've done is, uh, I've just taken gigs that I've liked, but at the same time, I've had other friends that just stuck it out and did one thing. And now they are known for that one thing which that's what they wanted to do and i don't know if that answers your question I'm probably digging myself a hole there i would say diversify and and also um don't be afraid to to stick to your guns if you want to be a solo artist that's it commit to it you know i, I never had the the cojones to do it i wish i had well it's a different mindset to think that way than it is for, yeah. for just about anything else because when you're a solo artist you, you have to be self-centered a greater degree than most people are i think because you're talking your art and yourself so it's a lot more difficult but you're right i mean the people that stick it out are the ones that seem to make it i mean my goal was always to be even early on when i was in, in high school i knew okay i'm probably not going to be um you know steve Vai in a, in a david lee roth band or something or whatever it was at that time um but uh I thought, okay, I, I'm going to be a studio musician or I'm going to be, quote, a working professional guitar player. So I really worked on my craft. You know, I'm a pretty decent sight reader. I can play all kinds of styles, but I worked on that. So it's it's enabled me to jump through a variety of styles and gigs and things like that. So I would say if you're a young player or just figure out what it is you really want to do, you know, have a, have a, you don't have to have everything mapped out, but know what it is you want to do because it's so easy to wander in this business and, and um, you can go from from gig to gig and style to style and, you, and then years go by and you're like, what am I doing? You know, have just kind of know what it is you want to do a little bit, you know, otherwise you'll just end up meandering through and waste time. So have a goal, you know, what what style or something like that you want to do, what it is you want to do. For more about Shane, go to shaneterio.com. That's Shane, S-H-A-N-E, Terrio, spelled T-H-E-R-I-O-T, shaneterio, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.